From Heterodox Academy, this is Heterodox Out Loud. I'm Zach Rausch, and each episode of this podcast features at least one of the best Heterodox Academy blogs. And today we have a special episode with Musa Al Garbi. Anti racism training, anti bias training, microaggression training, diversity, equity, and inclusion workshops. You've heard the buzz. Diversity related training is one of the most contentious issues in higher education today. Musa Algarbi, a fellow in sociology at Columbia University, has done a deep dive into the research. On June 3rd, he's moderating an online public event on diversity training with us. You can sign up on our website. Musa also wrote a three part series on the most pressing questions Does diversity training work? What do you do if you have to attend a training program? Are there alternatives? Musa is here with us today. The training as currently constituted just doesn't work. It doesn't. And in fact, it's, it's not only does it not work, but it, it's worse than doing nothing in some respects because it, it actually creates a lot of adverse consequences for how people relate to each other. Before my interview with him, let's hear from Musa's blog, Diversity Training Doesn't Work, This Might. The narrator is Jonathan Todd Ross. Diversity-related training programs are intended to serve a range of purposes. For instance, they can provide organizations with a signaling device to show that they are with it and doing something about inequality, bias, or discrimination. This can be useful for PR purposes and can also help shield organizations from legal liability. But of course, these objectives are largely implicit. The training would not work as a virtue-signaling tool if it was explicitly acknowledged as such. Instead, the explicit objectives of diversity-related training programs include rectifying inequalities, improving the organizational climate and employee morale, increasing collaboration across lines of difference, fostering free exchange of ideas and information, enhancing the hiring, retention, and promotion of diverse candidates, and more. Put another way, PR and legal purposes aside, there are real organizational needs that diversity-related training is supposed to help meet. It is no small challenge to create an environment where people with different backgrounds, worldviews, priorities, and life plans can forge healthy working relationships, learn from and grow alongside one another, collaborate to effectively advance organizational goals, subordinate egoistic and nepotistic impulses to prioritize organizational interests and meritocratic decision-making, etc. As I've elaborated upon elsewhere, the typical college graduate is not well-prepared to succeed at these tasks. On paper, diversity-related training is supposed to help fill these gaps. Unfortunately, a robust and ever-growing body of empirical literature suggests that diversity-related training typically fails at its stated objectives. It does not seem to meaningfully or durably improve organizational climate or workplace morale. It does not increase collaboration or exchange across lines of difference. It does not improve hiring, retention, or promotion of diverse candidates. In fact, the training is often counterproductive with respect to these explicit goals. 
But of course, it is not enough to simply demonstrate that the training doesn't work. Especially in the current moment when organizations are under immense pressure to do something, and organizational leaders often feel a deep personal urge to do something about inequality, bias, and discrimination. Insofar as the apparent choice is between doing nothing or doing something, even if that something is demonstrably ineffective or counterproductive, most will nonetheless choose to take action rather than remain passive. As John Haidt recently put it, what is needed most at this moment is not further demonstrations of how diversity-related training goes awry, but a viable alternative, something that better addresses the diversity-related challenges organizations face, ideally with fewer negative side effects. Fortunately, the empirical literature showing how and why diversity-related training fails also points towards ways that the training could be reimagined in order to better serve its stated purposes. Here, I briefly sketch out some of the core lessons. Diversity-related training should be indexed to concrete roles, tasks, and goals. Too often, diversity-related training is oriented around goals that it could not possibly achieve. For instance, it is impossible to eliminate racism, sexism, or inequality in the broader society, or even in the workplace, through diversity-related training programs, this is simply beyond the scope of what an organizational training session could plausibly achieve. Insofar as training aims for objectives that it could not possibly realize, it is, of course, doomed to fail. And when the goals of the training are extremely broad or vague, it can be hard to speak meaningfully about the efficacy of the training at all, and it can be difficult for those taking part to see the point. Training should instead be tightly connected to specific organizational objectives and the specific tasks different team members are responsible for. This helps participants more easily see the relevance and value of the training. It also helps them put the principles into practice more easily. An additional benefit of this approach is that it helps keep the training focused on advancing organizational goals rather than, for instance, litigating the history or current state of America in the process of trying to cultivate important workplace knowledge and skills, or debating the extent, causes, consequences, and possible solutions of various inequalities. Indeed, needlessly and often ham-fistedly wading into these controversial matters can render it almost impossible for people to actually acquire the core competencies that diversity-related training is supposed to impart, and can damage workplace relationships in the process. One need not, for instance, internalize left progressive views on inequality and identity issues in order to effectively collaborate with a colleague on a project, not the least because colleagues who are minorities or immigrants often won't subscribe to such views themselves. Insofar as training seeks to push controversial moral and political ideologies onto participants, in addition to or at the expense of providing them with practical knowledge or skills, this often lowers employee morale and generates blowback against colleagues who are women, people of color, LGBTQ, etc. Diversity-related training should be integrated into general employee development.
Rather than having standalone sessions on diversity issues, which implicitly frame diversity-related competencies as something separate from or in addition to one's general work responsibilities, diversity-related training should be seamlessly integrated with other forms of training. Consider management training. Avoiding nepotism, cultivating diverse teams, leveraging divergent viewpoints, etc. These are not supplementary competencies. They are part and parcel of the job. Being effective at these tasks is simply what it means to be a good manager. This is precisely how these topics should be addressed in training. They should be part of general development, and again, tightly connected to the specific tasks and competencies participants are expected to master. Similarly, in most organizational roles, people are expected to be able to collaborate in teams, to deliver and receive constructive feedback, and to amicably manage disagreements. Diversity-related training should not be approached as something separate from helping people fulfill these general expectations. Instead, considerations about working with people of different backgrounds and worldviews, who may possess different communication styles and behavioral expectations or preferences, should simply be part of equipping people to succeed at their regular organizational duties. Indeed, freestanding diversity-related modules often reinforce the false impression that people from historically marginalized or underrepresented groups are looking for special treatment or playing by a different set of rules. In fact, with some exceptions, most are looking for the same treatment that is due all employees, irrespective of their race, gender, sexuality, religion, etc. Folding considerations about diversity into more general guidance about organizational expectations helps to prevent this misimpression. And again, by tying the training to the specific roles and tasks people are expected to perform within the organization helps participants better see the value and relevance of the training, and to put it into practice. Perhaps most critically, this model provides people with multiple touchpoints on diversity-related content. They receive certain training when initially taking on a role some supplementary training as relevant to assist with particular organizational initiatives, other training when they move into a new organizational role, etc. These trainings would reinforce and build upon one another, without being overly redundant as the training would be tailored around specific roles, tasks, and goals, helping to mitigate an effect often observed in diversity-related training as it is currently practiced where the lessons learned from the training erode as time goes on, and people inevitably settle back into familiar patterns of action and interaction, to the point where the training leaves no durable positive effects. Training on issues like racism and sexism should be discussed as examples of more general cognitive trends instead of unique pathologies. People generally gravitate towards others who are like them, they often hold negative attitudes and demonstrate a willingness to discriminate against those who seem very different from themselves. People make snap judgments about others based on how they present themselves, the context of encounter, and their own prior experiences and background information. People prefer data that flatters what they already believe, and are skeptical of or resistant to information that challenges their priors. Critically, 
These are not tendencies that are unique to whites or men or heterosexuals, i.e. members of high-status groups. They are general features of human cognition. Yet, as political scientist Eric Kaufman explains, many people from high-status groups perceive there to be a double standard with respect to these behavioral and cognitive tendencies. Specifically, it seems to be not just acceptable, but encouraged for members of lower-status groups to organize along the lines of their race, gender, or sexuality, explicitly for the purpose of competing against high-status groups. However, when members of high-status groups do the same, to preserve or enhance their own social position, just as everyone else seems to be doing, this is condemned and described in terms of pathology. Racism, sexism, homophobia, etc. This perceived double standard, Kaufman argues, exacerbates resentment against people from lower-status groups and renders people more susceptible to reactionary politics. Rather than reinforcing this perception of double standards, diversity-related training should start by explaining bias, discrimination, nepotism, and motivated reasoning as general cognitive tendencies, which all people are susceptible to, and should equip participants to recognize these inclinations and to understand how they can derail organizational efficacy. Then the training can drill into how these broad features of human cognition often express themselves along the lines of gender, race, religion, etc., again, not just among members of high-status groups, but often among minorities as well. That is, in-group favoritism and out-group parochialism along the lines of race, gender, sexuality, etc. would be described as specific instances of broader cognitive phenomena, and participants would be guided in how to apply general frameworks and tools for mitigating these impulses to the specific cases of interactions across the lines of race, gender, sexuality, etc. This approach helps connect diversity-related training in a deeper way to broader skills and competencies, which renders them more likely to be retained and put into practice, and also helps reduce the stigma, defensiveness, and polarization associated with discussions around racism, sexism, homophobia, etc. per se. Training should be about managing rather than avoiding conflict. Conflict and misunderstanding are virtually inevitable when strangers with different backgrounds and worldviews, different perceived interests and priorities, with different plans and expectations, are folded into an organization together and expected to pursue common goals, often while competing against one another in various respects as well. Typically, with timeline and resource constraints, with a lot riding on the success or failure of individual and collective efforts, etc., Diversity-related training should be built around a recognition of this basic fact, that is, taking conflict for granted. Rather than trying to avoid conflict or misunderstanding, it should be oriented towards helping people leverage divergent views, constructively resolve misunderstandings, and think through points of commonality or compromise when interests and priorities seem to diverge. That is, the training should be about the pragmatic task of managing conflicts within an organization. Indeed, constructive conflict can often help drive innovation and bring people closer together. 
On the other hand, trying to prevent conflicts from occurring among diverse teams is a completely unrealistic goal, the pursuit of which often produces severe negative side effects. For instance, presenting participants with a list of taboos and prohibitions can erroneously lead people into thinking that colleagues from historically marginalized or underrepresented groups are fragile and easily offended, often leading them to reduce interactions with those people and to chafe under PC rules. Training should instead focus on helping people have frank and authentic conversations across difference, i.e. not conversations where people from high-status groups are expected to bite their tongues and simply acknowledge and validate whatever colleagues from lower-status groups have to say, while preserving and building relationships, and even having fun. Indeed, in an environment of trust, openness, and collegiality, it is far easier to correct misunderstandings and resolve disagreements than it is in an environment where people are constantly worried about causing offense, or about facing social and professional sanctions for any misunderstanding or inadvertent slight, where any colleague can, and is often encouraged to, report on their peers or supervisors for any perceived misstep at any time. Diversity-related training, then, should not be focused on avoiding and policing misunderstandings or conflicts, but on helping people build relationships and collaborate despite eventual, essentially inevitable, disagreements, and on leveraging divergent perspectives in order to advance organizational goals. Insofar as standalone diversity-related training is provided, it should not be mandatory. In order for people to benefit from diversity-related training, to actually internalize the information and skills they are supposed to be gaining, participants have to enter into the training in the right state of mind. If people don't want to be there, if they feel as though their arms are being twisted, if they don't see a point or value to the training, then they are unlikely to learn much, and in fact may and often do leave the training with lower morale and higher resentment towards colleagues from historically marginalized or underrepresented groups than they had before. Again, diversity-related training tends to be more effective and less problematic when integrated into more general development or indexed to particular initiatives and priorities. However, insofar as organizations continue to offer freestanding and more general diversity-related training, it should be presented as a resource that people can choose to opt into rather than a requirement that people must complete or face sanctions. Insofar as leaders wish to encourage higher levels of participation, they can offer slight incentives for those who take part, rather than leveling threats or punishments against those who decline. If people are in a session because they chose to be there, they tend to be far more open to learning than they otherwise would be. Diversity-related training is dead. Long-lived diversity-related training? It should simply be acknowledged. The reforms described here would essentially end diversity-related training as it is currently understood, as freestanding sessions focused specifically on issues like racism, sexism, homophobia, etc., particularly among members of high-status groups. In its place would be training on general cognitive distortions 
which all people are susceptible to, equipping participants with practical tools and resources to identify and account for these tendencies, and how to recognize how these general inclinations often play out along the lines of gender, race, sexuality, etc. The training would take for granted that disagreements and misunderstandings will occur among diverse teams. These conflicts are not signs of pathology, wrongdoing, or an unhealthy organizational culture. They are more or less inevitable consequences of diversity. But they do not have to be toxic or damaging. They can even be productive. The training would not be one-size-fits-all, but would instead be built around specific organizational tasks, roles, and initiatives, helping people more easily see the relevance and value of the training, and to put it into practice. The training would be seamlessly integrated into general employee development, rather than being its own thing. Based on the available empirical research, this approach seems likely to be more effective at achieving the stated goals of diversity-related training. However, it should be emphasized that most of the components of this alternative paradigm have not themselves been empirically validated or widely implemented to date. Only after more rigorous testing and implementation can we be confident that this alternative approach will work better in practice. But in theory, the empirical literature on how and why the prevailing approach to diversity-related training typically goes awry seems to provide us with a promising roadmap of what more effective training might look like. Narrator Jonathan Todd Ross with Musa's blog, Diversity Training Doesn't Work, This Might. Now, our interview. Musa, thank you so much for coming on to Heterodox Out Loud. Thank you for having me. This was actually just one of three blogs that you've written for us on diversity-related trainings just in the past 12 months. Uh, why now? I guess the most pressing impetus was that a lot of people were talking about diversity-related training, and diversity-related training became a popular way that organizations were responding to calls for change in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing. Um, a number of people within organizations were demanding that uh, companies sort of do something to show that they're on the side of racial justice, etc. And what a lot of companies sort of instinctively reached for was anti-racism training or diversity training. And that created some backlash from some in some quarters, uh, namely because a lot of people felt like the training was a waste of time or didn't work. And so there are these claims and counterclaims about whether the training is useful or not. And a lot of it was sort of at the level of rhetoric, but it didn't need to stay there because actually there's a huge body of empirical research on sort of uh, on this training and its efficacy. Um, and so that's what I wanted to do was sort of create a resource that people could use to talk about this issue in a more informed way. So let's discuss those three pieces, the blogs that you wrote. The first one was basically just a literature review. Um, so, you know, there, there's been a whole bunch of research since the mid 80s, um, evaluating the efficacy of, of the programs. The overwhelming conclusion from that work is that they tend not to be effective at advancing the stated goals. They do serve other purposes, and this is part of why they're popular. So, for instance, companies want to be able to show that they're 
uh, supportive of, of social justice related issues in part to attract talent um, because you know people, especially in knowledge economy industries like finance or tech or uh, higher ed, the, the employees that you wanna recruit tend to very, very much care about these things. So if you want them to come work for you, you have to show that you care about them too. That's part of it. And another part of it is sort of shielding people from um, lawsuits or bad PR. It provides a way for companies to show that they're sort of doing something about uh, racialized inequality or gendered inequality, uh, which can help in court. And in fact, a lot of companies do use the fact that they offer this training in court to help ward off lawsuits. Uh, so, so it serves a bunch of purposes other than the purposes that it says it's supposed to do, which is to help people from historically marginalized or underrepresented groups feel more comfortable in the workplace, to retain them, to improve diversity in the workplace, to reduce conflict in the workplace. The training doesn't do any of that stuff. The way people engage and talk about these issues this is often non-constructive. So the second piece in the, in the series was to give people advice for how, you, how, how can you engage in a productive way on these things. So say your employer um, wants to institute this training which the empirical research shows doesn't work. If you just say, I don't want to do it, or it doesn't work, <laughs> that's not going to be uh, super effective. So the second piece was to give people um, strategies for how do, you, how do you productively engage people with respect to what, what the empirical literature shows or doesn't show. The third piece was sort of looking at the literature about where diversity programs go awry to sort of imagine what a more effective and what a more constructive um, uh, diversity training regimen might look like. So one of the things you, you, you state is like, right, there's no empirical backing for the current initiatives that are being done in universities. In the meantime, what should universities be doing, if anything? So there are some people that are piloting and uh, trying to empirically validate, you know, some of different alternative approaches, um, but but right now the, the evidence just isn't there to show that they that these other alternatives would be, you know, necessarily more effective. Now there there is there are sort of strong theoretical reasons to think that these alternative approaches would at least be less damaging. So what I would strongly um, recommend that institutions do, to the extent that they have the capacity to do this, and not all and many institutions won't have the capacity to necessarily do this, would be to um, try to hire people to pilot alternative programs that are based on, on what the literature says is more, more effective. Um, and, and similarly for donors and anyone else who might be listening, the single most important thing that people can do is do more fundamental research to show, to validate an alternative empirical approach. There's hunger, deep hunger within institutions all over the place for something else. And then the this topic is, uh, it, it's a super hot topic in the public right now. And I guess one of my questions is, why is that the case? And why is this a topic that people should care about in the first place? Anything that gets pulled into the culture wars just rots everyone's brains. I mean, it, it rots discourse, it rots. Um, and, and so... The DEI training got pulled into the culture wars again in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing. This was like a go-to move that a lot of corporations and, and institutions um, reached for because it's easy and it's relatively cheap. On the left, 
a lot of people were frustrated with companies doing this. Um, there's, there is a sense, and it's not a wrong sense, <laughs> that it's basically uh, a way for companies just to kind of symbolically show they're with it without doing anything like substantial about um, racialized inequality. And then on the right, similarly, there was frustration because it seemed like corporations were trying to push ideological sort of positions onto their employees uh, using this training that is demonstrably ineffective. Basically across the political spectrum, it became polarizing for employees uh, for because institutions relied so heavily on this training as their sort of go-to response to the George Floyd killing. So do you think it's a good thing that there is this impetus for diversity trainings in universities today? Yeah, so what's interesting is, so if you look at the history of sort of how diversity trainings came about and why diversity-related training came about, it was because companies had like, there were sort of these pressing needs. Really before the sort of late 60s, early 70s, institutions of higher learning were very parochial spaces. It was mostly like, so co-ed education didn't become a thing until mid-60s, early 70s. And even then, there weren't a lot of like sexual harassment or sex discrimination protections for women until the late 70s, early 80s. So it wasn't until 1980 that women became a majority of students on colleges, despite the fact that they've been a majority of uh, the population for, you know, basically forever. Uh, and then same thing with African-Americans and racial and ethnic minorities. You know, there were 19 states in America all the way until 1973 that operated dual systems of higher education, one for Blacks and one for everyone else. Um, in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, um, institutions of higher learning were integrating racially. They were integrating in terms of gender. They, they, there was a, a broader mix of people from different class backgrounds as well as a result of expansions of student loans and GI bills and stuff like this. And so institutions of higher learning were much more diverse. And as a consequence, you know, a few years later, <laughs> When these people graduate and they get jobs, um, companies now are all, are all of a sudden dealing with a much more diverse workforce than they ever have before. And, and so what you saw were uh, reams of lawsuits, <laughs> basically. This was the, almost the immediate aftermath of these rapidly diversifying workplaces. You, there were reams of lawsuits. There were all sorts of tensions um, because people who never had to worry about dealing with people who are different than them and didn't really have a lot of skills and whatever in doing this, all of a sudden were forced to, and it was messy and it was chaotic. Um, and so companies started reaching for something that could help people learn to engage more effectively. So, th so this was the real need that companies had that sort of gave rise to diversity training programs. Um, but because of the sort of urgency of, of that, that a lot of uh, companies were facing, um, they didn't wait around to test the stuff to see if it works. They just started doing something. Um, <laughs> and it was like basically in the 1980s, uh, mid-1980s or so, that people started stepping back and going, well, workplaces still seem pretty tense and retention is still pretty bad. Does this stuff actually work? And so they started empirically testing it, and, and, and um, it turns out that it really doesn't. So last question for you is, what, what is your bottom line? What, what would you like to make sure our listeners take away from your blog? The first one is that the training as currently constituted just doesn't work. It doesn't. And in fact, it's, it's not only does it not work, but it, it's, it's 
worse than doing nothing in some respects because it, it actually creates a lot of adverse consequences for how people relate to each other. But the second point is that just saying it doesn't work or it's dumb or it's bad or it's wrong or it's ideological or whatever the criticism is, just criticizing it in itself is basically useless because um, the, the training serves a bunch of purposes and unless there is some other way that institutions can fill those institutional needs, they're just going to keep doing what they're doing because they don't have an alternative. Musa, you have an event coming up this week in addition to your three blogs. It's on June 3rd. Uh, I'll be uh, joined by a handful of other great scholars. Uh, so June 3rd at 7 p.m. Um, for a Heterodox Academy event called um, Diversity Training. Uh, what does it aim for? What should it aim for? Where we'll be dealing in, well, we'll be delving into these kind of high-level questions about um, what should be the goals of diversity training and how does that relate to how we sort of structure these trainings. Musa Algarbi. Find out more about our live event with Musa at heterodoxacademy.org. This is Heterodox Out Loud. I'm Zach Rausch. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>